Blog Talk Radio. Connecticut. 
In 2014, the lower income was 22.4%. In 2014, the middle income was 45.55%. In 2014, the upper income was 32%. The lower income change was, uh, was 0.79%. The middle income changed was it lost 4.18%, and the upper income change uh, gained 3.39%. That was just in Bridgeport, Stanford, and Nor Norwalk. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you go to Hartford, East, West Hartford, East Hartford, East, Connecticut. East Hartford, Connecticut, what happened was, and I won't bore you with the different numbers, but the middle income lost 6.4% in that area whereas the upper income, they gained 4.31%. Those were all from 2014. Yeah. So it's hard to say what they have, how much they've done. If they've gone down. In the New Haven, in the New Haven uh, Milford, Connecticut, the middle income lost 7.89%, uh, and the uppers gained 6.14%. It's a lot. The Census Bureau doesn't publish the same individual level data used in the Pew study on a town-by-town -town level, so we were not able to extend the analysis to towns in Connecticut. But we did look at change in median income Connecticut towns between 2000 and 2014, the period examined in the study. While the size of the upper class grew in Connecticut areas examined in the study, the median income de declined in 120 towns between 2000 and 2014 after adjusting for inflation. Just 49 towns saw increases in their median income. Mm. That's interesting. So here, we're in, the, we're in Litchfield County. Most Connecticut towns have lost change. Now, we live in um, Litchfield County and the change is 14.37%. Hmm. Well, these are towns, I see. Yeah. Salisbury lost... Um, no. Yeah. It doesn't lose, it gained. Uh, oh, it gained? Mm -hmm. Okay, it changed 15%. Yeah, well, there are a lot of wealthy people in this area. And then Canaan went down by 9%. Yeah. What's that? North Canaan, go up to the corner there. No, that's a surprise. Canaan is Falls Village, actually. How about Sharon? Cornwall, they they gained. Sharon lost 1%. So town by town. Interesting, lost 6%. Uh, Colbert lost 2%. Uh, Torrington lost 358 yeah, uh, Colchester. But overall well, in yeah, Connecticut, we, we there is a lot. We're not doing so great. Yeah, not doing so good. So, folks. But in we, where we live in the uh, Litchfield County area, we have a lot of, uh, looks positive, you know, the income looks positive, but a lot of it, uh, weekend people are responsible for, New Yorkers and retired, very wealthy retired people that have homes here as well as Florida or maybe the Carolinas or maybe Arizona. So it's deceiving. The local I, people aren't flush. The well, people that I thought this was an interesting one. Live and work uh, here. Union heads ask 
uh, members to withhold donations to the Democratic Party, okay, in Connecticut, and union boycotting Democratic fundraising dinners over layoffs. Good. Uh, yeah. So that that's that's kind of good. So, you know, saying, hey, why should we be giving to you? You're you're, you're, you're taking away our jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Lori Pelletier, Connecticut AFL-CIO Executive Secretary, is asking its members to withhold donations to the State Democratic Party, including in the form of uh, purchasing tickets to the party's annual fundraising dinner. I agree with that. Hartford, in the wake of a budget deal that drew a strong rebuke from unions, the state's largest labor organization is asking its members to withhold donations to the State Democratic Party, including in the form of purchasing tickets to its annual fundraising dinner next week. Lori Pelletier, president of FLCIO, uh, stopped, stopped short of saying she was calling for a boycott of that dinner, but said the group would be sitting out here. They will instead focus on raising money for their own political action committee and are preparing a separate fundraising dinner. Once we write that check to the party, we don't have control over which candidates they work for, Pelletier said. She said the move was patent after what labor organizations are doing on a national level. Lee Appleby, a spokesman for the State Democratic Party, said it was unfortunate that some would attempt to undermine an event with the sole purpose of raising resources to elect Democrats up and down the ticket. No, they're not representing what people want. That's right. The Connecticut Department, uh, I'm sorry, the Connecticut Democrat Party. Oh, on your, on your yeah. okay. um, Lila, I had to leave for a few minutes. The Connecticut Democratic Party continues to share many of the same values and goals as our free friends in the labor movement. He said, and we remain committed to working with our state's labor unions to grow our economy from the middle out. Well, Pelletier and other labor leaders called for closing a nearly $1 billion projected deficit by raising taxes on the state's wealthiest residents. But Governor Daniel Malloy um, consistently said he wouldn't agree to any budget deal that included new taxes. The guy's a fool here, and when we get some of the richest people in the world right here in Connecticut. The budget deal he and top legislative Democrats reached cuts more than $850 million in spending and calls for the elimination of 2,500 state jobs, including about 1,850 layoffs. It's amazing. At the State Democratic Party convention earlier this month, labor officials handed out flyers calling on Democrats to reject the budget deal and this attempt to reconfigure the Democrat Party into the party of Reagan in a narrow vote in the House, some of the general assemblies. Um, uh, most pro-labor Democrats voted in favor of the deal. And we've heard that several lawmakers have said behind closed doors that the labor movement has nowhere else to go. And Pelletier said, those are frustrating comments to us because we believe we're, we're, a base of the Democ we're, we're the base of the Democratic Party. But having said that, ultimately our responsibility is to make sure our members are protected. Senator Beth Bayh, a uh, Democrat from West Hartford, 
co-chair of the Legislative Budget Writing Committee, said she had a lot of respect for Pelletier and sitting out at dinner is a fair way for unions to express their displeasure. I wish we weren't here, but this is where we are, she said. And it, it, this goes on, but it, it's kind of, you know, I, I totally agree. Hey, you know, uh, you know, why should they pay that? And, and of course, tickets for the dinner are 185 bucks a piece. So, you know, I don't think so, man. You're knocking out my job. I don't think I'm going to be paying to, to have you uh, represent me anymore. Yeah. So anyway, especially giving uh, $185 for uh, <laughs> a lousy dinner. Uh, lessons in labor from a Philly fast food worker. Um, um, I wanted to talk about this. Uh, what cuts loom at your community college or regional university? This is happening in Connecticut, but it's, it's happening everywhere I know. Uh, where there's any deficits going on, they, they attack the university system, they attack everybody. But, you know, Southern Connecticut State University is proposing a permanent to, to permanently close the recently renovated six-lane pool and gymnasium. Uh, just one of the many cuts students would notice as the state's public universities and community colleges work on a budget proposal to close another year of glaring deficits. Norwalk Community College is cutting its library uh, budget by 30%, which means students will have fewer hours to use the facility. And Gateway Community Colleges, college rather, official, say the school doesn't have enough staff to keep up with the volume of applications for admissions or financial and since positions are left vacant when people leave and will remain unfulfilled to save money. And while students will need to pay 3.5% more to attend community college next school year, financial aid for poor students is decreasing at five of the 12 community colleges. Two of the four regional Connecticut state universities are cutting financial aid. The community colleges are racing for 825 fewer full-time equivalent students next year, a 3% decline. The universities are expecting 235 fewer students and 1% decrease. Um, we have really cut our operating budget to the bone, she says, and, uh, you know, I guess I'm sure they have. Everybody's making it, you know, but it's just a shame to, to you know, you balance the budget on the backs of the people who can least afford, you know, the increases and, you know, to take away people's loans and to, you know, take, take away their, their, their chance for higher education is just, just, you know, by not funding the universities properly and by not, you know, allowing uh, financial aid, enough of it. And, and, you know, Bernie's plan for free tuition and college education is so real. It's so right. It's so timely. Now, if we want to fulfill our, our, if we want a generation of, 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 of well, um, well-educated, you know, people, then we have to pay for it, man. We have to make sure that it's getting going to get done. This is kind of a weird, um, this is kind of a weird uh, article. 
but it says why union workers should vote Republican. Unionized workers should get behind Donald Trump, this article, this editorial. Leaders of organized labor will see things differently, and that's a tragedy for their members. It's kind of, kind of a strange article, but let's, let's read it anyway. Too many unions that are behind Trump, but maybe. This guy is saying, unless this is from, uh, hang on one second here. Undertone, I believe, in the magazine. This is in the Washington Times. Um, why union workers should vote Republican? Unionized workers should get behind Donald Trump. Leaders of organized labor will see things differently, and that's a tragedy for their members. Um, the organizers frequently preach workers join unions to make a better life for themselves and their families. At the most basic level, that comes down to using collective bargaining to win higher wages, better benefits, and more reasonable working conditions. Well, too often, however, unions are, uh, use workers' dues to support a liberal social agenda that many rank-and-file members may oppose or at most feel neutral about. For example, union support for the Democratic Party agenda on abortion and gay transgender rights and Appointment of radically of radically liberal Supreme Court justices who circumvent the Constitution to directly legislate what liberals can't win in Congress and the state legislatures. More directly, harmful to unionized workers is support of the Democratic Party agenda on wages and workplace conditions. Subjects uh, handled directly for union members through their hard-won contracts. For example, increasing the minimum wage in New York City won't raise pay, won't raise pay for unionized city transit workers or policemen, but it will raise their cost ten to fifteen dollars a week for buying morning coffee and lunch to takeout restaurants. The union boss does social progress, but the union workers to pay cut. I'm not sure I follow what this guy was saying here, but. I know that, um, I mean, yeah, they, but, I mean, most, like a lot of union members vote against their own best interests, you know, and uh, voting for a Republican has never been a, a union's best best friend. So, let's see. Um, See what's going on in the in, uh, in in the rest of the world here. Uh, okay, my uh, uh, huh. let's see.
This is kind of interesting. I I don't know. Um, this is really interesting. That University of California tuition timeline. This is this is the kind of difference we it's been since. This was put out by the Bernie Bernie Sanders uh, campaign. Um, in 1921, there was free tuition to California colleges, and the fee the the the, the fee was only twenty five dollars. That was the, that was the only fee that you had to pay. This was California colleges in 1921. This was pre. This was prior to the agent, uh, wasn't it? In 1968, college was free, at free tuition to the University of California, and there was only a $300 fee, which is student fees and stuff like that. Now, in college, uh, cost of 1985, which was the time when I was going to school, tuition and fees uh, for a year, we're about $1,296. Right? So they were, depending on how many courses you took, out of five, five courses or four or five courses, yeah, it would be um, about $1,300. But now the cost in 2016, which is 30 years later, is $13,500. I mean, it's gone up 100, uh, it's gone up, what, 1,300%, right? No, a thousand percent. Yeah, a thousand percent. Twelve ninety thirteen hundred times ten would be uh thirteen hundred thirteen thousand, which is what it costs now. And the answer is the question that's posed by the Bernie Sanders group is if public colleges could be tuition free fifty years ago, I don't know why the hell they can't do that today. Yeah. I don't understand either. Yeah, I remember going to school back in the '80s uh, when I went uh, went to college, and you know, it was it was affordable, right? Uh, you know, it was at thirteen hundred dollars covered your tuitions and for a full a full semester, you know, and uh, uh, so yeah. Anyway, things times have changed. I thought I might, might, this is kind of an interesting um, article. Robert Reich, uh, uh, um, uh, he uh, he wrote to the New York Times, but he stated that uh, the mainstream media now want to uh, explain Trump's rise in the polls and Hillary's decline as a product of the article below puts it. Her inability to consolidate the independent-leaning young liberal supporters of Mr. Sanders. The most recent wave of national surveys shows Mrs. Clinton winning this just 55 to 72 percent of Mr. Sanders' supporters. She's uh, faring far worse among young and liberal voters than one would expect. And uh, explaining Hillary Clinton's lost grounds in the polls. How do they explain that, Leo? Oh, I was going to say, you know what, did you see it? I read this, which is, is kind of interesting. In 1921, mm-hmm. Cal- University of California, 
had free tuition. I know they were they were free university. And it was, they had twenty five dollars fee. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then in 1968, they were still free tuition, but they had a $300 fee. Mm-hmm. All right? And now, it's 85, tuition and fees went to about $1,300. Now in 216, they're up to 13500 mm-hmm. And this is a Bernie Sanders campaign, but he's saying, hey, you know, if, we, if they could do it 50 years ago, why can't they do it, can't they do it now? You know what I mean? Mm. I know California had an excellent education system. Yeah. They were known for its great education system, and they were known for its free colleges and universities. Yeah, and you know they were they were doing it. Now it's no. Where's the money going? That's a good question. Where is the money why, going? Why can't why the hell can't we pay for it? Yeah, instead of uh, you know, giving it to. Uh, I don't know who they're giving it to, but they're not giving it. Well, to they're giving eleven eleven million bucks a day to Israel. Yeah. You know, they were given um, millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. Plus, the Federal Reserve came up with uh, over nine trillion dollars that there's no ev- no record of where the hell it went to. And oh. uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, if we got that back, all right, uh, we could probably afford to pay everybody everywhere to go to school. You know. It's a disgrace. Uh, Explaining Hillary Clinton's lost ground in the polls, the upshot. A month ago, Hillary Clinton had a big lead in national and battleground state polls. Today, she has a modest lead at best. A few surveys even show Donald Trump ahead. What happened? Mr. Trump has made gains in unifying his party's base, while Mrs. Clinton has not done the same with hers. If anything, her problem with Bernie Sanders voters has gotten a bit worse. To some extent, Mr. Trump's gains are not surprising. Candidates usually rise in the polls after they win the nomination and consolidate their party's base. John McCain and Mitt Romney erased Barack Obama's lead in 2008 and 2012 after they secured their party's nomination. Mr. Obama reclaimed a clear lead in 2008 after he clinched the Democratic nomination. But Mr. Trump's success is an important accomplishment. A month ago, there were two serious reasons to question whether the party would ever fully unify behind him. He's made a lot of progress and has done it without much backing from Paul Ryan and Ted Cruz. The chance of a big win for Mrs. Clinton has appeared to decline as a result. I don't think she'll win at all. The the prospect of another fairly close general election is not what Democrats were hoping for against Mr. Trump. But Mrs. Clinton will have a chance to widen the cap by winning over supporters of Mr. Sanders. Never happening. Never happen. No, it's not going to happen. Not going to happen. Mr. Trump, despite his gains now, finds himself at around 42 or 43% in national polls. He still trails Mrs. Clinton in the balance of recent surveys, even though she is facing a divided Democratic Party. She is in the lead in no small part because there are simply more Democratic-leaning voters than Republican-leaning voters in the country. All but one of the most recent surveys shows there are now more Democrats than Republicans. But Mrs. Clinton nonetheless struggles because of her inability to consolidate the independent-leaning young liberal supporters of Mr. Sanders. 
The most recent waves of national surveys shows Mrs. Clinton winning just 55 to 72 percent of Mr. Sanders' supporters. I don't think she'll get that many. I don't even think she's that. She's faring far worse among young and livable voters that one would expect. The good news for Mrs. Clinton is there's a lot of room for improvement. She could make gains after winning the nomination, much as Mr. Trump already has. Mr. Obama's gains in June 2008 are probably the clearest precedent. He led by a wide margin until Mr. McCain won the nomination. He regained the lead after he was the Democratic Party's choice. And I don't even think she's going to be the party's choice. We don't want her. No. No. I don't think she... She has no possible chance of unifying the party because she's so disliked on so many levels. First of all, she's... I mean, even the she's, Republicans uh, want to vote for her. Hmm. They're still talking about voting for her. Yeah, because, because she basically is a Republican. She is a Republican. She started out in her life as a Republican, and she, for some reason she and Bill Clinton got a stranglehold on the Democratic Party, introduced corporatism into the party, they accepted a lot of uh, uh, donations, and they all became corporatists at the top, yep. uh, regardless of the way the rank and file felt. And that's a problem. And I think I mean, they, they should be thrown out. They're well, really they Republican. She started off as a Goldwater Republican, supported Rockefeller, tried to become a Saul Alinsky co- communist, and uh, I don't know what she is. She has no... She's a corporatist and a militarist. That's what she is. That is not a liberal. No. No. So why would any Bernie Sanders supporter support her? They can't. No. She, she represents everything that we don't like. Yeah. And uh, plus, her stand on trade is abominable. Yeah. She could support and helped write the TTP. Something I I can't. Instead, 
It might be because he or she is honestly happier without incessant inane prating of mere mortals like you or I. New research published by the British Journal of Psychology in February, authored by evolutionary psychologist Norman Lee uh, from the Singapore Management University, uh, uh, and uh, suggests that smarter people may be happier going it alone. Mm-hmm. Okay. And according to them, our roots in ancient hunter-gatherer society, in which they call the savanna theory of happiness, explains our current perception of happiness. They use the theory to explain the outcome of a survey of 15,000 adults between the age of 18 to 28. And um, analyzing the statistics and demographics of the society, they found that, unsurprisingly, people who lived in areas with more people were unit uh, per unit were less happy. Uh, on the other hand, people with more social interactions, gained no surprises here, said they were happier. But here's the shocker, though. Smarter people were not as strongly affected by the above two factors. In fact, they might even be happier living in a denser area with less interaction with with others. And uh, the effect of population density on life satisfaction has therefore more than twice as large for low IQ people than for high IQ individuals. More intelligent individuals are less are actually less satisfied with life if they socialized with their friends more frequently. Okay. Yes, you heard that right. Residents of rural areas and small towns are happier than those in the suburbs, who in turn are happier than those in small central cities, who in turn are happier than those in large central cities, and they explain the obvious part one of their findings. Our ancestors lived as hunter-gatherers in small bands of about 150 individuals. In such settings, having frequent contact with lifelong friends and allies was likely necessary for survival and reproduction of both sexes. So we are instinctively wired to work together to thrive in relatively small communities. However, times have changed significantly since then, and according to the researchers, smarter people may have simply become more adept at dealing with the new normal. And more intelligent individuals who possess higher levels of general intelligence and thus greater ability to solve evolutionary novel problems may face less difficulty in comprehending and dealing with evolutionary novel entities and situations. This is a quote. This is all a quote. But remember this conclusion was reached by individuals who are probably above average in terms of intelligence to begin with. It is also just a theory made up to explain their findings and not a reason to avoid that guy who keeps dropping uh, random factoids. He's probably not really that bright anyway. Then there's another theory. Maybe some people just can't stand conversation that consistently revolves around celebrity worship. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, yes. (laughs) I hate people who talk about people magazine and all that crap. I agree. Uh, That's when I begin to tune out and want to go home. Lila and I are so, uh, it's funny how we, uh, I don't know, I don't think we can name any, uh, anybody over under 30 today as a stars or, or as a... Uh, I never cared, though, Bill. Celebrities, you know? I have no interest I mean, we in might stars. remember them, like, but I don't remember their names, all right? There's a couple of, like, um, everyone knows Taylor Swift or... Uh, 
But um, you know, and uh, what's her name? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Brittany, Lady Gaga. Brittany Spears, Lady Gaga. You know, Madonna. Mm -hmm. you know? But you remember those? But you know, still. Katy Perry. Uh, Katy Perry. That's another one. Yeah, yeah. We we see we see that more. But those are all promoted. Oh, well. but, but we're not very good with actress names. No, I'm, well, I'm not particularly interested. No, uh, it doesn't uh, interest me at all. It never has. Like I, I really like the the, the girl who plays Penny, and her name is uh, Coco. Uh, That's because you like The Big Bang Theory, and you watch it every that. night. Yeah, I love that show. I know we get repeats here every night, you know, so it's like. Uh, but um, some of the listeners may may favor that too. But let's go on and see what uh, what else we have here. Oh, what's her name? Penny. 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 I love Penny. So uh, let's see. What does uh, Robert Reich have to say? Well, he says that I'm getting sick and tired of connecting wrong-headed analyses in the mainstream media of what's happening in America's political economy, uh, such as the article below in yesterday's Times, which argues that most voters are doing sort of okay. So his election really isn't about the economy. Oh, wrong! That's what he says, wrong. Most voters aren't doing okay, and wages are being stagnated for years, and the wages of young college grads are trending downward, and the labor participation rate, the participation rate of the, uh, of the probably... I mean, how can they say it's not, not about the economy? For God's sakes, of course it is. Uh, it's still low. Uh, labor participation rate is still low by historic standards. Yeah. You want to read the rest of that? Many people. Many people are working part-time jobs who prefer full-time, and insecurity is rampant. A record number of Americans don't have regular employment but are part of a growing on-demand economy in which, uh, in which all the risks have been shifted from business to workers. Two-thirds of Americans are living from paycheck to paycheck. This most voters are doing sort of okay uh, baloney is preferred by the Washington, New York establishment that's in denial about why Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders have attracted so many mo voters. The truth is huge number of Americans are convinced, for good reasons, the system is rigged against, him, uh, against them and have been attracted either to an authoritarian populist son of a bitch who that's supposedly forced change or a political revolutionary revolutionary who will lead us to change. What do you think? I agree with you, and I like the political revolutionary. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah. He doesn't like Trump at all. Huh? Well, he doesn't like Trump, but does he like Bernie? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I like Bernie. Yeah, he does like Bernie. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, he endorsed him over... over. <clears throat> There's an article of uh, Robert Reich endorses Bernie over uh, Hillary and he worked for the for the Clint. He was the labor secretary for. Uh, well, he probably knows a lot about them. Yeah. Good reason to endorse, not endorse her. Yeah. And uh, let's see, people for Bernie. We must keep up the pressure on the Democratic Party. In at least four states, Maine, Alaska, Vermont, and Colorado, Democrats have voted to reform the superdelegate system, in which 712 Democratic elected officials and party bosses are allowed to cast votes at the national convention for any candidate they please, even if that vote goes against the will 
of the state's orders. But that isn't what you read. You read in Maine they didn't change. It's no, changed, Maine, but not till 2020. Oh, yeah, 2020. This one here, I don't know if this They're one. implying that it's going to be changed for this election, and that's not true. I don't think so. I, I, who knows? But that's the end of that article. That's just the end of that statement. A senior Pentagon official wow. just vindicated Edward Snowden's actions. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. We haven't heard much about him. No, not very much. They're pretty well censored him up. Pretty well. Hmm. This is from Anti Media. Yeah, yes, Obama, Hillary Clinton, and other government officials have said that Snowden should have gone through proper channels instead of publicly blowing the whistle. What does that mean? They could have hushed him up? Yeah, it could have even been a whistleblower. We pointed out, oh, yeah, and been destroyed, pointed out in 2013 that there are no proper channels Snowden could have gone through. Now a high-level Pentagon official confirmed that wouldn't have worked. He gives the examples of NSA whistleblower Thomas Drake, uh, see exclusive interviews with Thomas Drake, who tried to go through proper channels, but he was stonewalled and framed by the government that was supposed to protect him and to use the information to dis he disclosed to make our country safer and less corrupt. Yeah. So let's see what has to be what's said here. So a video from the guy, I believe that guy. Here, there it is. Today, a Democracy Now! broadcast exclusive. A former senior Pentagon official speaks out for the first time about how his superiors broke the law to punish a key national security agency whistleblower. By now, everyone knows how Edward Snowden revealed the government spying on hundreds of millions of people around the world. But if you want to know why Snowden did it and the way he did it, you need to know the story of John Crane, who worked 25 years for the Department of Defense Inspector General's office, which helps federal employees expose abuse and corruption. He now says whistleblowers have little choice but to go outside the system. Crane is coming forward to speak about what happened to NSA whistleblower Thomas Drake, who revealed the existence of a widespread illegal program of domestic surveillance. Drake's house was raided by the FBI in 2007. He was charged in 2010 under the Espionage Act. In 2011, he pled guilty to a minor misdemeanor of unauthorized use of a government computer. He did not serve jail time. John Crane and Edward Snowden's stories are told in the new book, Brave Hearts, Whistleblowing in the Age of Snowden. In dozens of hours of interviews with reporter Mark Hertzgard, Crane described how in December 2010, Drake's lawyers filed a complaint with the Inspector General alleging he'd been punished in retaliation for his whistleblowing and that the crimes Drake had been charged with were, quote, based in part or entirely, unquote, on information that Drake provided to the Pentagon Inspector General during its investigation of the NSA whistleblowers. In other words, the indictment had unmistakable similarities to the confidential testimony Drake had given to Crane's staff at the Pentagon's Inspector General's office. This suggests investigators had not simply given Drake's name to the FBI, but shared his entire testimony. Mark Hertzgard recounts this and much more of Crane's story publicly in his book, Braveheart. In it, 
Hertzgard tells how Drake's arrest, indictment, and persecution sent an unmistakable message to Snowden, raising concerns within the system meant he would be targeted next. Edward Snowden has responded to Crane's revelations by calling for a complete overhaul of the U.S. whistleblower protections. Snowden told The Guardian, quote, we need ironclad enforceable protections for whistleblowers, and we need a public record of success stories. Protect the people who go to members of Congress with oversight roles, and if their efforts lead to a positive change in policy, recognize them for their efforts. There are no incentives for people to stand up against an agency on the wrong side of the law today, and that's got to change, Snowden said. He continued, the sad reality of today's policies is that going to the inspector general with evidence of truly serious wrongdoing is often a mistake. Going to the press involves serious risks, but at least you've got a chance, he says. Well, for more, we're joined here for the first time by John Crane, formerly with the Department of Defense Inspector General's Office, which helps federal employees expose abuse and corruption. And we're joined by Mark Hertzgart who is a correspondent at Nation Magazine, author of the newly published book, Braveheart's Whistleblowing in the Age of Snowden. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! So, John Crane, talk about why you are coming out publicly for the first time. I'm coming out publicly for the first time because what Edward Snowden did is it was the largest, most massive classified leak in this country's history. And so we have two separate issues here, that one is we, I think, need to make sure that there won't be any more massive disclosures like that. But we can only assure that should we have a whistleblower protection system in place that will make sure, one, whistleblowers have the confidence to step forward without having their own individual identities compromised. And when they step forward, that they're not subject to multi-year retaliation. Talk about where you work. People may not even realize the Pentagon has an inspector general's office and what you were in charge. Yes, um, I was with the inspector general's office. I, I worked there for 25 years. I was a senior executive there. I was one of the founding generations there. I had an office that was largely responsible for transparency and for accountability. Transparency meant that I dealt with the media, Congress. Accountability meant that I was responsible for the overall whistleblowing process. DOD is a huge agency. We have 1.2 million. Even with all that, even with all his, his, with his position. Yeah. Okay. He, he whistleblowed and they killed him. They, 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 they destroyed him. You know? And uh, unbelievable. And of course, what he did, you know, warned uh, Snowden to do, to do it differently. You know, and he did. So, yeah, it's, I want to thank What uh, a you know, huge mistake. Yeah, we thank uh, uh, the source here was uh, 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 Democracy Now! for, the, for that interview. And uh, is it the most... But you can go to that um, if you want to hear the whole thing. Oh, oh, <laughs> this is good. Bin Laden is alive and well in the Bahamas. 
said how it snowed. Oh, okay. Oh my God. I don't know. Just Maybe he is. Maybe he is. Never got a body. Obama is uh, alive and well in the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. It was Snowden. Moscow National Security Agency whistleblower Edward Snowden has made a new controversial claim, saying that he possessed some classified information proving that Osama bin Laden is still alive. Snowden, who, li- who lives as a fugitive in Russia after leaking documents about NASA's surveillance program, has made some previously unreported allegations about the famous terrorist Osama bin Laden during an interview with the Moscow Tribune. According to him, not only is bin Laden still alive, excuse me, but he is living a lavish lifestyle in the Bahamas thanks to regular payments from the CIA. I have documents showing that Bin Laden is still on the CIA's payroll, claims Edward Snowden. He's still receiving more than $100,000 a month, which are being transferred through some front businesses and organizations directly to his Nassau bank account. I am not certain where he is now, but in 2013, he was living quietly in his villa with five of his wives and many children. Mr. Snowden says the CIA orchestrated the fake death of the former leader of al-Qaeda while he was actually transported with his family in an undisclosed location in the Bahamas. Osama bin Laden was one of the CIA's most efficient operatives for a long time, claims the famous whistleblower. What kind of message would it send their other operatives if they were to let the SEALs kill him? They organized his fake death with the collaboration of the Pakistani Secret Service, and he simply abandoned his cover. Since everyone believes he is dead, nobody's looking for him, so it was pretty easy to disappear. Without the beard and the military jacket, nobody recognized him. Mr. Snowden says that the documents proving bin Laden is still alive will be integrally, will be integrally, Reproduced in his new book, expected to be released in September. I'd be interested in that. Oh, yeah. Edward Stone was hired as an NSA contractor in 2013. And after previous employment with Dell and the CIA, in the month of June of the same year, he revealed thousands of classified NSA documents to journalists. The U.S. government filed espionage charges against him shortly after his revelations were made public. And he has been living under asylum in Moscow after fleeing the U.S. for Hong Kong in the wake of the leaks. And on July 28, 2015, the uh, White House has rejected a We the People petition to nearly 168,000 signatures to pardon him. Well, there you go, folks. There you go. I always thought Bin Laden was already dead. Before they supposedly killed him. Yeah, he was supposed to be dead before that, you know, ten, ten years, more than ten years, right after the, right after the uh, bombing. Well, do you think, what do you think that says about the other dictators and things that we've propped up that oh, we yeah, supposedly well, they claim, they killed claim, off? Where they, are they? They claim Hitler's been in Argentina for mm-hmm. most of his life. Um, so anyway, let's see. Now has a monthly no car day. 
that brings a 40% drop in air pollution. Wow. That's good. Parisians can get around, I guess. They get, they get mass transportation. Yeah, we don't have anything. Nothing compared to that. We don't have any public transportation. And what we have is Buses terrible and in this state. Yeah, subways. Well, we don't have subways here. No? No subways in Connecticut. Paris uh, now has a monthly no-car day. It brings a 40% drop in air pollution. And we got to go to that. China maybe needs to do that. This is from the True Activist website. And they say, uh, since September of last year, Paris has been implementing a no-car day once every month in an effort to reduce air and noise pollution. True Activist reports on the first no-car day and even published a follow-up article that confirmed that the day without cars was a success. So making it a monthly affair was the obvious next step for Annie Hildago, the city's mayor. So where is this, Paris? Mm-hmm, oh, that's Paris. Paris, yes. Okay. Every month, the city experiences a free day uh, from vehicles in the major parts of the city, from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m., and everyone is able to move freely on the streets in, in a way that they normally can't. And while the streets are used by most, most more cyclists and pedestrians, other events such as soccer games and yoga are also held. That's pretty cool. And it goes on and mm. on. But uh, fortunately, Paris's days without cars are well-coordinated and even planned out through the summer because other cities that have attempted the initiative have not had the same success. I wonder why. The uh, world can only hope to follow the lead of this iconic city and implement similar measures. <coughs> Good idea. Yeah. Maybe harder in some of the other cities that don't. Maybe have. they don't have the yeah, the, the ease that yeah. you know and the yeah. transportation. Yeah. Let's take back control of. A group of retired Army, Navy, and Royal Marines seniors have joined a campaign using military personnel to back uh, Brexit. And Brexit is uh, to get out of uh, the European, European Union. European Union. Yeah. I thought they were going to vote on that. They did. I thought they did. And it uh, looks like they didn't. Hmm. Hmm. So, virus fears allow House to rename Easy Pass pro-pesticide bill. Yeah. Uh, yeah they, they allocated $1.1 billion, I think. But, uh, wow. I, but the House wanted to cut it down to 600000 which is like... Nothing. It was less than even a third. It wasn't even a third of what he originally asked for. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, it says, according to House Democrat Whip, uh, whatever his name is, Steny Hoyer, uh, the uh, bill is nothing but a Trojan horse with practically nothing to do with Zika. It was sponsored by Republican Bob Gibbs, who, as Cleveland dot com reported last week uh, for years has tried to get Congress to change permitting requirements for pesticides sprayed near water. Oh, okay. And uh, the Obama administration issued a statement last week uh, saying 
that it strongly opposes the legislation as it would weaken environmental protections under the Clean Water Act. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. So, um, why would they throw? Why would they put through a bill like that? Well, because mosquitoes breed in standing water. No, I know, but I can I can understand what. Uh, yeah, you want to protect was, because he wants to protect water. Yeah, he was against it, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I'm sure Monsanto wasn't. No, of course not. I am because, um, yeah, this is uh, a Democrat from California said, I'm worried, I'm concerned about the effects of these pesticides on the health of our rivers, our streams, especially the drinking water supplies of our citizens, including pregnant women. Uh, and slamming the repeated... I, uh, iterations of the bill that threatens to undo protections that safeguard the environment and public health. Hoyer said that to bring the same bill back to the floor last week and again today, renamed with Zika in the title, is one of the most egregious displays of dishonesty I've seen while serving in the House. Huh. Yeah. It is a, it's an act that seeks to provide uh, political cover for Republicans who refused to act on President Obama's urgent request for funding to address the Zika outbreak in a serious way. The House Republicans must as well bring this bill to the floor and rename it the Making Pesticides Great Again Act because, in truth, it would remove virtually all federal oversight concerning the use of chemical pesticides to ensure that do, they do not end up in our water supply. Huh. And uh, the bill also met outrage from National uh, Resources Defense Council uh, government arm. It's tweeted, Zika must be killed out, killed, but Zika Vector Control Act is not the way to do it. It will instead allow greater pesticide pollution in our water. Hmm. So, yeah, you got to, you know, you got to really be careful yeah, I mean... They keep uh, pumping stuff in there, and, you know, whatever Monsanto can get away with, they will they call it Zika. <laughs> if you thought the media bias against Bernie Sanders could get any worse, you were wrong. Media plan plans to call Democrat primary for Clinton before California closes. I uh, thought they weren't allowed to do that. They're not, but uh, that freaking uh, Chris Matthews will probably do it. Hmm. They're, they're so desperate, man. They're so yep. desperate. So desperate. Uh, Chris Matthews sat down with Bernie Sanders campaign manager Jeff Weaver and it's confirmed that MSNBC and several other media networks intend to call the Democrat primary race for Hillary before uh, polls close in California on June 2nd, June 7th. Matthews said that the plan is to call the race at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And, uh, and three hours before the polls close in California. Weaver argues passionately that the superdelegates' totals should not be included in the reporting that night, and superdelegates do not vote until the convention. Until that time, he states that the numbers are essentially only a poll and do not reflect the official tally that should be reported by the media. Weaver also expressed dismay at the prospect that this might affect the voters of California who should be given a chance to voice themselves without being discounted. And the media has had a history of reporting superdelegate totals. Of misreporting. Of uh, misreporting, uh, throughout the primary race. They did that this time. 
Mm-hmm. Even with the public statements from Democratic National Committee Chair Debbie Wasserman, Schultz that the superdelegate totals should not be included in articles and press releases, numerous articles still included misleading information for months without separating pledges and unpledged delegates in their totals. Even today, MSNBC continues to report delegate totals that include superdelegates. And importantly, research has proven that polls and forecasts can actually influence uh, voters' choice through the bandwagon effect, uh, which results people will back the choice or candidate they think is mostly likely to win. Recently, some Democratic figures and Clinton surrogates have urged Bernie Sanders to drop out of the race, arguing that his continued campaign only hurts Clinton's bid against Donald Trump. However, Bernie Sanders insists that his voters' concerns must be heard and intends to carrying those issues to the National Convention in Philadelphia and argue for his candidacy to the superdelegates before the final vote. Yes, Bernie Sanders has been citing Clinton's rapidly dropping support in his own performance against head-to-head polls with Donald Trump in his arguments, and Sanders maintains that he is the strongest candidate in the general election. Yes, his voters... His people will not support her. No, and Sanders recently won a concession from the DNC after intense pressure to get extra delegates appointed to the DNC platform committee, using the opportunity to place key progressives on the crucial board. And Sanders was given five appointees while Clinton was given six. And over, However, none of Sanders' appointees were approved by the Rules Committee, which decides the actual procedures for the convention and could stymie his efforts considerably during the convention. Okay. Not a surprise. Yeah. Oh, well. So, anyway, that's the show, folks. I want to thank you so much for joining us, and uh, hope you can tell your friends about it and um, you know, all that good stuff. And uh, we'll, all right. talk to, we'll talk to you next week. So, have a great Memorial Day weekend, folks. Yeah. And we'll talk to you next week. Good night.